Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. Last week, the city of St. Louis brought a lawsuit against six Missouri residents who the city says are running a massive illegal rooming house operation that involves 39 properties across at least nine South City neighborhoods. Riverfront Times reporter Ryan Kroll has been investigating the operation and what tenants are facing as the buildings get cleared out. He joins us now to talk about his coverage. Ryan, so good to have you back again. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Let's talk about the basics of this case, this story. Who is at the center of this, these six people? Sure. So the lawsuit, which was filed last week, was against um, Dara Doherty uh, and some of her family members, as well as a number of LLCs that they run. Uh, And these individuals, basically, the lawsuit alleges, um, have for a number of years now been uh, the owners of condemned houses, 39 condemned houses at least, throughout the city that they've then uh, rented out sort of in the, they've rented out individual rooms in these houses to individuals. Um, And, you know, the houses are condemned, so they're not legally um, allowed to be used as rental properties or they're not even supposed to have people living in them. Uh, Yet they seem to be generating quite a bit of income for these individuals to the tune of about $40,000 a month, Mm -hmm. um, allegedly. Right. And which neighborhoods are we talking about? Yeah, quite a few. Virtually, like the whole kind of, almost every neighborhood in South City, uh, were um, Tower Grove East, Gravoy Park, uh, the Patch, Crondelet. Um, let's see what else. The um, uh, Soulard, Benton Park, Benton Park West. Uh, I know I'm leaving off a few, but it's really uh, spans a pretty wide swath of South City. Mm-hmm. And their operations being illegal. You've mentioned that they're they're condemned. I mean, is there something about renting out rooms in that way that is, you know, shady or not lawful or is it primarily about the the condemned nature of these buildings? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm so glad you asked that. Um my understanding is that um, rooming houses, you know, situations where a, a landlord rents out individual rooms in a house is not strictly illegal in the city of St. Louis. However, in order to be allowed to do that, uh, you would have to go through the plat and petition process, which means you need to collect signatures from people in the neighborhood, et cetera. That's my understanding, at least. Um, and that's going to be, I think, um, you know, it, it's hard enough to do that if you're just trying to get like a liquor license or something like that. So mm-hmm. that's going to be a really hard thing to do in order to run a rooming house. And that was almost certainly not happening in this case. Mm-hmm. And just to make a clarification, Dara Darty and her associates, they own buildings that are not all condemned, but there are many of them that are. Uh, my understanding is, so the lawsuit by the city, I believe references 39 properties and almost all, if uh, if not all of those are condemned. Yeah. Okay. Now, someone who's had a close view on this, speaking of neighborhoods, 
is Joe Goodman. Joe lives in Tower Grove East on Virginia Avenue near one of the rental properties. Joe, welcome and thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Can you tell us about the condition of the property that you are nearest to? Right. Um, I live, I share an alleyway with one of the condemned properties. I would think it's probably one of the more dilapidated buildings that she probably owns. But she also owns uh, another house, four houses south of me, that's habitable and not condemned. So Mm. I get to see both sides, you know, both kinds of operations she's running. Yeah. And who lives at each of these buildings? Okay, so the dilapidated building that's condemned, uh, these people... You know, they're probably just going through a lot in their life. They're down on their luck. I think a lot of them would have been homeless if they weren't living in one of their properties, houses. Um, the other property, um, there's like five people that live there. They're all working. They mm-hmm. go to work every day. There's five or six at any time. The alley, that the house in my alleyway that's condemned, there's any time between seven and nine people living there. Okay. Uh, wow. You know, crammed in, uh, living in the basement and several, many of the rooms in the house. Yeah. Yeah. And you are here not as a, as a nimbyist. Right. Uh, you know, you had several interactions with one person in particular. Larry. Named Larry, right. And he lived at the condemned property until a few months ago. What was notable, Joe, about your interactions with him? Uh, super nice guy. Um, up at dawn, working all day until the sun went down. Um, I talked to him almost every day that I... I work at the uh, community garden at the end of my street, so I, I saw him often every day. I went to the community garden, and um, nice guy, collects cans in the alleyways, um, just a hard worker, and not sure where he's gone off to now. Yeah. Since uh, his building was condemned about four months ago, before the city started their civil process against Dara. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, Ryan, you have been covering this story, and one of the things that really stood out is that the people who are living in these rooms, they have so few options. What is it that you heard from them about why they were, I'm going to use the word choosing um, very consciously here. Why were they choosing to live in these rooms and under these conditions? Yeah, I, I see what you're saying there. Um, yeah, for speaking very generally, these were folks who had you know, some money coming in, um, either through assistance or through through jobs, that sort of thing. But for whatever reason, they didn't have the resource is to um, live in a, a place that had, you know, uh, a place that you would hope someone, you know, could live in a place with running water, heat, air conditioning that's safe, for instance. So they were kind of in this gap where um, the, the folks running this operation were clearly able to, you know, extract some amount of rent from them but they were, for the most part, in this spot where it was either I'm going to be living out on the streets or I can live have a roof over my head, a very subpar, substandard roof. Um, and they kind of had, you know, this choice between two bad options. And yet to use the to be very conscious of how we're using the word choose. Yes, they were choosing um, the, what they probably saw as the less or the least of two bad choices. Mm-hmm. And in your interactions, Joe, with Dara, um, what was it that stood out? I mean, was she was she doing what she was doing out of a sense of like a goodwill? Oh no, it's it was pretty obvious she was running a criminal um, operation. 
Uh, she never went into the property. She always sent in other people to check in on the residents, collect uh, rent. I'm not quite sure uh, how the operation worked. I only interacted with her in the alleyway and always kind of felt uncomfortable when she was around. Mm-hmm. Um, but with that being said, appreciate you uh, mentioning that I'm not a NIMBY because our neighbors set up a uh, food pantry for the boarding house and other people in the neighborhood as well as kind of an outreach and just want to make sure that they were they were eating and had a cl- we had a uh, clothes rack in mm-hmm. wintertime for them as well. Right. So. And were there any efforts to raise the alarm around what you and maybe other neighbors were observing? Yeah, um, had a lot of neighbors that had called the city multiple times. Um, I called the aldermen and the board of the president last summer when their air conditioning was taken out of the house. They had two wall units, then Dara had come by and taken them out. This summer? Last summer during last the summer. heat wave. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Ryan, I mean, you, you've been doing this investigation how was it that this situation was even possible? And is that partly how your investigation began? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, there definitely seems to be this sort of disconnect between certain aspects of city government where, you know, the building division inspectors, they would um, flag these properties as being in violation. The uh, police department's problem properties unit would often get involved. Uh, the people like Dara, other landlords, would be referred to the city's municipal court. The court they wouldn't show up to their court date or whatever, what have you. But in one way or the other, the courts would issue a warrant for Dara's arrest um, or whoever the landlord may be. You know, in, in Dara in this case, but nothing would really ever happen. So if you were um, comfortable having, you know, several warrants out for your arrest, you could basically run this sort of operation probably into perpetuity, mm-hmm. if not for um, the uh, the city's affirmative litigation unit uh, filing the lawsuit that mm-hmm. it did. So you know, what was it that led the city then to finally take action and to, and to file a lawsuit? Yeah, that's I honestly don't know what exactly, you know, was the was the impetus for the specific lawsuit. There was a similar lawsuit filed uh, on behalf of a man who rented from Dara um, in the Benton Park neighborhood and was stabbed in one of her properties. Um, so that lawsuit, which was filed in April of last year, sort of mirrors the city's lawsuit quite a bit. Uh, I don't know what it was, though, that uh, eventually kind of nudged the city councilor's office to file the lawsuit, but there was a lot of these sort of pieces kind of coming together um, or that sort of these pieces kind of emerging in various parts of the legal system uh, and the and other aspects of city government. I think it was probably really just a matter of putting them all together. Mm-hmm. And you wrote that one of the reasons that Dara and her associates were able to run this illegal housing scheme for so long, it may be due to the way that the city of St. Louis handles occupancy inspections. How how so? Oh, sure. Yeah. So um, if you're an ethical landlord who wants to kind of play by the rules, um, you're supposed to get uh, the the place that you're renting, it should be inspected anytime that the utilities change hands. So, you know, you have a new tenant coming in, the utilities are going to, you know, change their, the, the, the name associated with that address is going to change mm-hmm. in, you know, the Ameren or the Spire account or whatever it is. Um, but one way that you can kind of sidestep that if you're sort of a, 
you know, a landlord with fewer scruples is basically you just have all the utilities always in your name, always in the name of the same LLC. Then it doesn't matter how many people come in or out. Um, as far as the city's concerned, in a lot of ways, that you know that property's not had a new occupant come in, or they don't know to go in and do an inspection. Yeah, I mean, is there any reason to believe that this city will reform this system in the near future? I know there's a lot of interest uh, in doing that. Um, I think it's I think it's Alderwoman Alicia Sunnier. It might be someone else has filed a. Um, a board bill that would kind of, you know, make the steps to start making the steps to do that. Um, it's pretty tentative at this point, but there's definitely some will to do that. I know Megan Green's talked about that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there seems to be a sort of a common, you know, understanding that the building division is a little bit understaffed at the moment. They, they have many vacant uh, inspector positions. So I think it's kind of being realistic. What can you do with the resources you have? Um, and there seems to be some will to do that. Mm-hmm. Now, there is uh, this aspect of uh, money that Dara was receiving. How did Dara receive that from the tenants? Uh, you, I think you touched on this briefly, but in the coverage that you've done, you also wrote that a places for people caseworker, kind of to the point of people who are, are experiencing housing instability, right? that a, a caseworker was aware of the condition of these properties. I mean, were there no other checks in place? Um, there was, I mean, there was a there was the ability for, like, city inspectors to issue violations and that sort of thing. But for the most part, they just didn't really have teeth. There was no um, great enforcement mechanism, I mm-hmm. guess. And now that this lawsuit is basically telling Dara and the other five individuals to stop what they're doing, I guess that's kind of the enforcement mechanism. But prior to that, there really wasn't any way to um, put a hard stop to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. My neighbors had called the city multiple times, and there were a few health inspections. Not quite sure if it was a health department inspection or a city inspector came by a few times and said that he'd saw some violations, was going to give her some time to work on them and come back. And this went on for like three or four years. Right, right. I mean, what is your hope then, Joe, for what will happen at the condemned property that you share an alleyway with, as well as for you know, Daros rental property on your block that is still occupied? Right. Uh, well, for the dilapidated condemned house behind me, it would be nice if we're okay with the boarding house, with the people living there. I mean, I know they're gone now, but the people that live there were nice. And, um, I'd be cool with them having a boarding house there. Mm-hmm. None of, nobody in my neighborhood had a problem with the people living there. It was the way I think Dara treated them and how dilapidated the building looked. Yeah. Ryan, what is it that you'll be keeping an eye on as this case makes its way through court? Sure. So one thing we, me and I should give a shout out to my colleague, Mike Fitzgerald, who's also done a lot of really good reporting here. Um, one thing we've been finding out more and more is that this uh, illegal roommate house operation seems to have been heavily subsidized by the taxpayers through um, pandemic relief. So basically money intended to keep people in their homes who were affected by the pandemic. A lot of that money, um, basically Dara, she just used these tenants as like a pass through for government money to come into her back pockets. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I, I don't know for a fact that which, how she was using the money was a illegal use of that uh, of that pandemic relief money or that pandemic rental assistance. But it certainly seems to violate the spirit in which it was offered, if not the letter. 
So I would be very curious to see um, if she's facing any kind of you know, legal action from the federal government right, on that right. front. Yeah. And just in this last uh, minute, from your investigation into why Dara Darty and her associates were able to run an illegal housing scheme for such a long time, I mean, is there any reason to suspect that there are other problem landlords who are running similar operations in the city? Yeah, she she is perhaps the most flagrant, the one whose properties are sort of attracted the most amount of just, you know, violence and, and crime and literal death. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's a lot of landlords in the city who are kind of uh, flouting the, the rules and the laws. Um, we've, we've done a little bit of look into that. We'll have more on that space. Um, but no, she seems to perhaps be the most egregious, certainly not the only one. Right. Ryan Krull is a Riverfront Times staff writer and journalist, and Joe Goodman is a Tower Grove East resident who lives near a rental property operated illegally by Dara Darty and her associates. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Thank you. This episode was produced by Emily Woodbury. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Doerr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.